hey, this is an exciting week because this coming week I turn 37 and on the same day, my daughter Marvel has her first birthday. And so to celebrate today, I've titled the message 37 things that I have learned about God. Buckle up, it's gonna be a long one. Just kidding. Today is the first part of a series called Stuck. And so all across the city, in your, uh, in your bedrooms, on, in your living rooms, in your kitchens, wherever you are, can we say stuck together on the count of three? Ready? One, two, three. Stuck. That's right. And here's how I want to define stuck for the next few weeks. Here's our definition. It's in a state that you don't want to be unable and not sure how to move forward in a state that you don't want to be unable and not sure how to move forward. Now, I want you to do something for me. If in the last few months, if at any point along the way you have found yourself stuck, I want you to hit the like button if you're on YouTube. If you're on Facebook, I want you to hit the emoji bar and I give you full permission to hit the angry emoji. That's right. We're going to set the church, the church video stream record for most angry comments and angry feedback in the history of Facebook. So go ahead right now. If you have found yourself stuck, hit the emoji button, hit the like button. Let us know that you have found yourself stuck. That's right. Most of us, if we're honest, most if not all of us, have found ourselves stuck at some point in the, in the course of the last few months, weeks, whatever you want to define it as. In the course of this season, we have found ourselves stuck. It may be as simple as being home far more and for far more often than you want to be. It might be that you were stuck at home because you couldn't go to work. It might be that you found yourself wanting to eat out, but you found yourself stuck eating at home. Some of you, you were, you were planning on graduating and you had spent the last four or five or six, or if you're an engineer, nine years, um, you, nine years working towards graduation and you planned on walking the line at graduation and instead you found yourself stuck at home for a virtual graduation. For some of you, you for, for all of us, let's be honest, we would rather be in-person gathering right now, but we find, find ourselves stuck at home home for church online. For some of you, you had planned magnificent family vacations for the beginning of summer or the end of spring, and you were going to go here and you were going to go there. And instead, you found yourself with your kids stuck at home doing YouTube virtual tours of zoos. I mean, that's what, that's what many of us have been doing. For others of you, you planned a beautiful, magnificent, wonderful wedding, and you found yourself stuck with, 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 with a much smaller thing than, than you had originally planned. Very few people, you know, only family could be there. You had to, you had to elope and, 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 and go somewhere and, and plan it on the, on, all on the last minute. And you found yourself stuck with a wedding that wasn't the wedding of your dreams. We've all found ourselves stuck at some point along the last couple months. Here's what we have all rediscovered in a really profound and a really big way. No one likes being stuck. Aren't you, aren't you glad you came to church this morning online to figure that out? No one likes being stuck. Not one of us likes the idea of being stuck, and no one actually likes being stuck. And here's what we've all really learned specifically over the last couple months. None of us like being stuck because of something that we can't control. That's absolutely true. We found ourselves in a situation where we didn't choose it, we can't control it, but we're all stuck because of it. So none of us like this situation. It's absolutely true that no one likes being stuck in ways because of something that we can't control. But here's something that's that is also absolutely true. Every day we tolerate being stuck in ways that are totally within our control. See, it's possible to be stuck when it comes to our relationships. It's possible to be stuck when it comes to our finances, stuck when it comes to our physical health, stuck when it comes to our emotions, stuck when it comes to our, our maturity. And as we're going to talk about today, stuck 
spiritually. And if we're being honest, all of us know the frustration of feeling like we are not where we want to be in one of those areas at some point in our lives or even right now, where we've got ourselves stuck relationally, got ourselves in a, in a sticky place financially, got ourselves stuck from a maturity standpoint where everyone else seemed to move forward, but we didn't move forward and we didn't maybe grow up the way everyone else did. And all too often we find ourselves there and, and we find ourselves living lives as if it's normal and as if we have no other options. And it's interesting to me that so many of us have complained and complained and complained so much about being stuck because of corona, while we accept our stuck in some of the big areas of life that are actually within our control. And so if that's you, I have something I want to tell you. Stop accepting your stuck. Stop accept, accepting your stuck. See, if you have found yourself stuck in an area that you can control, you do not have to stay there. Now, and, and here's the thing, I have some bad news and I have some really good news for you. The bad news is that if you got yourself stuck, you got yourself stuck. If you got yourself stuck, you, you got yourself stuck. Unfortunately, it means if you got yourself stuck in an area that you could control and that you didn't have to get stuck, it means that you're responsible. But that's also the beginning of the good news. See, the good news is you're responsible. See, if you got yourself stuck, the good news is if you got yourself stuck, the good news is that you can get yourself unstuck. If you got yourself stuck, you can get yourself unstuck. And if you see what I mean by that is simply this, that if your behavior and your choices got you stuck, it's likely that some small tweaks and changes in your behavior and in your choices could get you unstuck. And the small tweaks and changes are things that you absolutely can control. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about these things. So today, let's talk about being spiritually stuck. See, you've probably been there, and I, I know that I've been there. It's, it's the feeling that, well, I pray and I talk to God, but I don't know if my prayers are actually going anywhere. I don't know if I'm accomplishing anything with my prayers. It's the feeling of, I feel like there's more that God wants of me or more that God has for me, but I don't know what that is or what steps to take to get there. It's the feeling of, well, I read my Bible, but when I read my Bible, when I open my Bible, it's, it's as if it's just kind of going through the motions. It's as if, I, if there's no life there. It's just a spiritual act, but nothing is really happening. I don't feel like God's talking to me through it. It's that feeling that you know God has further for you, that you feel like maybe God has more that he wants you to know and more that he wants you to understand. The feeling that, that God has something deeper, but you don't know what deeper is, what deeper looks like. And that word deep is actually at the heart of what I want to talk about today because here's the truth. In order to get unstuck spiritually, God will ask you to go deeper. In order to get unstuck spiritually, God will ask you to go deeper. But here's the thing. Even saying that phrase, even saying deeper to go deeper, it makes me a little nervous because in Christian circles for years and years and years, people have misunderstood and misapplied the word deep when it comes to spirituality. See, I, I love Andy Stanley's definition when it comes to being spiritual, spirit, spiritually deep. He said deep is when you're in over your head and your feet can't touch the ground. See, the misunderstanding that people have and people have had in terms of the word deep is that when most people think deep, they think deep understanding or deep knowledge, that there's some wisdom or knowledge that's hidden. It's not quite at the surface level. And if we just read more and read deeper and study harder and read certain authors who were deep and read certain books and certain books and certain books and move in this circle and find ourselves in this circle, that we will be able to attain or learn the deeper 
things of God. And while I'm all for reading and I'm all for studying and I'm all for um, you know, looking at all the different ways that we can learn and, and, and know things about God, what I know is that that is not ultimately where deep is found. Because come on, you, you've seen this, you know it's possible to read and read and read and study and study and study and do word studies and do all the things that help a person achieve more knowledge. And it's possible to still know more about Jesus, but to not be anything like Jesus. See, John Maxwell said this line, and I don't, I'm not sure if it originated with him, but he said this, most Christians are educated way beyond their level of obedience. Most Christians are educated way beyond their level of obedience. See, you've seen these people. It's possible that some of you have been these people, people who have been around church for years and years and years, and they've done all the classes and they've read all the books, and they're deep. But when it comes down to it, they've got all the answers, but they have little idea of how to live out their faith. They have a lot of answers, but little love for others. They have a lot of knowledge about God, but seem to have missed being changed by God. That's not the kind of deep that you are called to, and that's not the kind of deep that I am called to, and that is not the type of deep that gets you unstuck when you are stuck spiritually. Here's the other thing that I know about trying to get unstuck by going deep when it comes to knowledge of God. There are plenty of people who have ended up in really, really, really weird places spiritually and really, really weird places from a belief standpoint while they were pursuing deep. And they found themselves going, wow, I've never heard anything like this before. This seems so fresh and this seems so new. Why is it that I have never heard anything like this before? And the reason that they've never heard anything like it before, unfortunately, is because oftentimes those new things that they've never heard before that seem so fresh are not rooted in biblical truth. And so the, the thing that I want to make sure that I, I caution us on is simply this. Be careful that in your pursuit of deep, you don't lose sight of Jesus. This is so important that in our, in our pursuit of deep, 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 I want to go deeper, deeper, deeper. We don't pursue deeper more than we pursue Jesus. Don't pursue deeper so much that you lose sight of Jesus. And so here's the thing. As we talk today about what deep really looks like, I will stake my ministry career and I will spend my entire life in ministry trying to help people understand that this is what deep is actually about. That spiritual depth is not about knowledge. Spiritual depth is about obedience. Spiritual depth is not ultimately about knowledge. Spiritual depth is about obedience. See, spiritual depth is not about understanding more. It's about applying God's word more. Spiritual depth is not about knowing more. It's about submitting and obeying more to the authority of God that we learn about through scripture. It's taking the things that God has told us and commanded us to do and exhausting the depths of what obedience looks like in light of that command or those commands. So today what I want to do is I want to study a really great illustration of this principle that comes to us from the Old Testament. And it's, it's a story that involves a foreign warrior who had, a, who had a serious problem that needed to be solved, who did not know God, and an, a legendary prophet in the land of Israel. It starts in 2 Kings chapter 5. It's a story of a man named Naaman and a man named Elisha. Here's what we're told starting in verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, catch this, but he had leprosy. 
At the start of the story, here's what we know about Naaman. He's the commander of a foreign army, and in fact, an ancient enemy of Israel who were God's chosen people. And he was loved by his king because he was good at commanding an army. He had won numerous battles, and he was great on the battlefield, which, by the way, would have set him up to be very, very, very influential in the kingdom and potentially the next king of Aram. But he had developed a condition that could undermine everything that he and his army had worked for. He had leprosy, a terrible, deforming, contagious leprosy. His future is on hold. He was stuck with leprosy. So in verse 2, we're told this. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Here's what happens. An Israelite girl is taken captive in battle because that's something that happened in those times. And she ends up serving in Naaman's household, specifically serving Naaman's wife. And while she's there, this is kind of amazing. While she's somewhere that she doesn't want to be, she doesn't lose sight of her faith in God and doesn't lose sight of the fact that she believes that God is a God of healing and a God who can restore and bring freedom. And that's a a big thing that maybe we should all pay attention to in a season where we're kind of stuck is simply this, that you may not be where you want to be, but you can still do everything that you're called to do. And for this girl, she tells someone that she's become attached to in a foreign land where she doesn't want to be, where she's been taken away from her family. She does not want to be here. But while she's there, she decides to use her position for good, to bring good to someone else, to bring God to someone else, to bring God's love and power and redeeming ability to someone who needs it. Here's what happens in verse four. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. This is an incredible gift. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now here's the thing. These nations are enemies, but apparently they weren't such bad enemies that they couldn't occasionally help each other out, especially the elite level people in, in, their, in their nations. This was common practice among nations in the, in the ancient world. Hey, you know what? We're going to send our people to fight each other and send each, uh, our people to fight each other. But at the end of the day, if one of us needs help and you can give it, we provide help for each other. So the king of Aram sends this warrior king who has defeated Israel numerous times to the king of Israel to be healed of his leprosy. So it says this in verse 7, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? Now, Let's just acknowledge something that's incredibly obvious when you read this story. The king of Israel is a bit of a drama queen at this point in history. He, he gets this letter and he's like, oh, me, 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 me. Why me? They're trying to pick a quarrel with me. And I just want to remind you, because some of us have a little bit of that in us, here's a lesson that maybe we can learn from the king of Israel. Not everything that comes to you is about you. And the king of Israel in this moment almost started a war and almost raised an army because he confused that something that came to him was ultimately about him. See, some of you, you have had some difficulty in your family because you thought that a problem that came to you was ultimately about you. And what we need to understand is sometimes there are things that come to us that have very little to do with us. Luckily, 
Elisha the prophet stepped in in verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Elisha sees that the king is ultimately throwing a tantrum and he sends a message to the king. Hey, king, um, this isn't about you. This has never been about you. This is ultimately about this man meeting the God that we worship. So send him to me so that he can know that not only is there a prophet in Israel, but there's a prophet of the living God in Israel. Verse nine tells us this. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Now, to a foreign dignitary, being sent to the middle of nowhere where Elisha lived was a little bit of a slight already. But now, like he gets to the house, he's like, you know what, I, hey, if this is how I'm gonna get cured of leprosy, that's fine, I'll go to the middle of nowhere. I already came to Israel. But he gets to the house and Elisha won't open the door for him. Elisha, Elisha won't even talk to him himself. Elisha sends a messenger. This is offensive. To, to a foreign dignitary, to a foreign authority, to someone who's used to snapping their fingers and people do what they say, this is offensive. This, this is offensive. And, and at, at the same time, like the, 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 there's also this matter of like, I've always been taught and, and have grown up where the fact that Elisha wouldn't go to see him was a sign of great, 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 great faith on Elisha's part that like, I don't need to see you in order for God to heal you. But like, let's be honest. What if this is Elisha being like, ew, he's got leprosy. I don't want to see that guy because what if it gets on me? We don't know what Elisha was thinking, but we do know that Elisha sent him a message with here's how you can be healed. And, at the, and, and the other thing that we know, and, and we see this because of Naaman's reaction, this wasn't exactly like a big, sexy, you know, medical healing man, you know, cure. This was, hey, here's the solution because you probably haven't tried this. I want you to go take a bath, and then take another bath, and 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 another bath. And after you take that bath, and by the way, don't take a bath in just any old river. Take a bath in our dirty Jordan River. And after that, you'll be healed. And as we see Naaman's response, Naaman thought that this was ridiculous. Here's what we're told starting in verse 11. But Naaman went away angry angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and he went off in a rage. See, Naaman is big mad. He is big mad that he came looking for a spectacle. He came looking for a show. He came looking for all the signs of religious show that he had become accustomed to because of the religion and the, and the way that people operated in Aram. He came looking for a show. He came looking for organized religion. He came looking for, unfortunately, he had come looking for all the things that had already left him unchanged and unhealed. He's mad because he's not getting the very thing that has left him stuck. And here's a lesson that we all need to be reminded of. A spectacle is not what gets you unstuck. A spectacle is not what gets you unstuck. A religious spectacle, a religious show, a big show of organized religion, waving the hands and doing all kinds of stuff is not and is never what will get you unstuck. There can be moments that begin 
with, with a show and begin with a spectacle and begin with, you know, with, 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 with all that, but they rarely do the long-term work of moving you in a direction that brings health and growth and life. Luckily for Naaman, he had someone in his inner circle that was willing to speak up and to speak out about what he was doing and what he was rejecting. So here's what we're told in verse 13. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? See, Naaman's servants confront him. They say, look, if you would do something big and showy and difficult and hard, why not at least try something simple? If, if you would do something deep because of the promise that it might bring you to a place where you are unstuck, why wouldn't you try something simple? If you would try something deep, why won't you try something small? And luckily for Naaman, and luckily for all of us that read this story today, Naaman was willing to listen. And Naaman was willing to actually take this small step of obedience. In verse 14, it says this, So he went down, Naaman, they get this, Naaman, this warrior, you know, head of the army, he allowed himself to be challenged by his servants. So he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all of the world except in Israel. See, here's what happened. Naaman took the step that he did not understand, the step that he had been resisting, the very step that he believes is far too simple and far below him to actually cure what ails him. And he's healed. And he's healed. And in that moment, he comes to an understanding of something that he could never have realized without his step of obedience. And here's the major lesson of the story of Naaman. To understand why, submit and apply. To understand why, submit and apply. See, Naaman doesn't understand or didn't understand why he was told what he was told to do. Naaman doesn't want to do what he's told to do. Naaman wants to resist everything that he's told to do, but he, in, in the end, he does it. And on the other side of his obedience, he comes to a place of understanding, a really, really, really deep understanding that could not be reached and could not be realized without his step of obedience. And I'll say this to all of you who might be watching today. You will not always understand why God is asking you or telling you to do what God is asking or telling you to do. But on this side, on, the, on, on this side of obedience, you're still left in a place of misunderstanding. You're still left in a place where you don't understand. The only way to get to the place of understanding is not by reading more, by studying more, by opening more commentaries. Not, it, it, you, you don't get there by those methods. You only get to the place of understanding through obedience. You only get to a place where you understand the why when you submit to God's authority and you apply to your life what he is asking and telling and commanding you to do. To understand the why, you submit and you apply. And on the other side of your obedience, everything that was unclear, everything that you didn't understand about why you were being asked or told or commanded to do what you were told to do, it becomes crystal clear. You see so clearly and you go, I can't believe I didn't understand that back there. You couldn't understand back there because it was only by taking the step that God was asking you to take that you could see. 
So here's another way, to, a great way to say this. Obedience always precedes understanding. Obedience always precedes understanding. See, we all wish that this was the other way around. Well, I want to understand more, and if I understand more, then I'll obey better. I want to understand more, therefore I'll obey better. I want to read more and understand more so that then I can apply better to my life. Here's the thing, I'm all for reading, I'm all for studying, I'm all for reading deep books, I'm all, I'm, I'm all for all of that. But at the end of the day, you don't get the understanding first and the obedience second. The way God has ordered it is simply this. We obey first, and that leads to understanding. We obey first, and then we come to a place where we see clearly why God is asking us to do what he's asking us to do. We, we obey God, and then we understand that he really does know best in and for and around our lives. Here's another great way to say this. Your understanding of God will never move past your willingness to obey the last thing God told you to do. Your understanding of God will never move past, will never outpace, will never move beyond your willingness to obey the last thing that God told you to do, that God asked you to do, that God commanded you to do, the thing that God called you to do. It, you, you cannot understand God past your willingness to obey. It's only through obedience that we come to understanding. And that's why our real bottom line today is simply this. In the context of being unstuck, here's the real bottom line today. Obedience gets you spiritually unstuck. Obedience gets you spiritually unstuck. Here's the real deal today. If you're finding yourself spiritually stuck, chances are that there is a step of obedience that if you take it, you will find that you have become unstuck. You will find that all of a sudden your prayers seem more alive. You'll find that all of a sudden when you read the Bible, you see that God's talking to you because right now there's this cloud of confusion because you're not taking the last step that God has asked you to take. All of a sudden you'll find yourself in a place of deeper understanding, not because you came and you read more, but because you obeyed deeper. You moved toward a place of, of further surrender and submission to the God who loves you and created you and knows you and knows ultimately what is best for you. Obedience always precedes understanding and obedience will get you spiritually unstuck. Now, in case you're wondering what this looks like or maybe what directions we should be moving in or how to begin to get spiritually unstuck, if you're thinking, I don't know that God's given me a specific command, there are a few specific commands that God has given to every single one of us. The first one came through Jesus, and it simply was this, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I'm called to do that. I'm commanded to do that. Devin sitting behind the camera right now is called to do that and commanded to do that. You sitting at your, at your computer, you sitting on your phone, you sitting on your tablet, you watching on your TV right now, on, whether it's Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, whatever day of the week that you're watching this, you are called and commanded to do this, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And may I just suggest that we all have some way that we can love deeper, that we can follow God's command to love someone deeper than we already have, that none of us has perfectly gotten down the command to love, which means we all have room to grow, which means every one of us has a next step. And I, and I love that Jesus phrased it this way, love your neighbor as you love yourself. See, what I know about me and what I know about you is that I don't always end up doing what's best for myself, but I'm always trying to do what's best for myself. 
This, this brings into, into, into mind our, our intentions and our motivation. See, as long as we're trying to do what's best for someone else, we're fulfilling the command of Jesus to love our neighbor as ourselves. And as long as we're paying attention on the other side of our intentions to what actually helped someone else, we can be fulfilling the law of Christ to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And let me just say, in, in our world today, if just the Christians got this right, if every person in our city who's listening to this right now got this right and started moving in the direction of love my neighbor as I love myself, love my neighbor as I love myself, try to do best for someone else as I would try to do best for myself, we could do a lot to make our world and our city a better place to live. Every single one of us can take a step to deeper obey the command, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Let me, let me give you another one. For husbands and wives out there, and we have a lot of husbands and wives in our church. We have a lot of you know, middle age and older age and, and, and really young age husbands and wives in our church. This summer already, there's four couples who have gotten married in our church, and there's a fifth one that's getting married in a few weeks. We've got husbands and wives, so let me talk to husbands and wives for a second. What you are commanded to do by God in the New Testament is that husbands, you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church, and wives, you are to respect your husband. And here's what's great about this. In the, in the New Testament, this is not an Old Testament thing. In the New Testament, we are told by James, who is a friend of Paul's, who is, who, you know, who is the brother of Jesus, we're told that if there's conflict between a husband and a wife, if, you're, if, as, if as a husband you're fighting with your wife and you're praying to God, God will not answer your prayers. It will be as if your prayers are hitting the ceiling until you make things right with your wife. Husbands and wives, if you're spiritually stuck, it may be because you have allowed your marriage to get stuck in a place that is settled for less than love and respect and is settled for less than what God has created and commanded marriage for. Husbands, love your wives as much as Christ loved the church. If you're like, well, I told my wife I loved her on her wedding day and I tell her every year on her anniversary, she knows I love her. Well, if you haven't shown your love for her in, in, in a anytime recently, she may not, she may not know. And if, you have, and if you love her a lot in feelings, but you don't love her a lot in actions, she may not know. And if you love her, but you're not willing to sacrifice for her the way that Christ sacrificed himself for the church, you have a step to take. Now, wives, as if I'm dumb enough to talk to wives about how they should treat their husbands. I am actually that dumb. Wives, it also commands you to respect your husband's. To show respect. You're like, well, I, I, I tell him I respect him every once in a while when he's deserving of respect. And that leads us to something that's important to talk about. Dr. Emerson Egrix calls this the crazy cycle in marriage. That, that, that if I feel like they don't deserve love, that, then I don't show love. And when they're not shown love, they respond w without showing respect. And so I, it's, it's unlove and disrespect and unlove and disrespect, all because we're giving people what we feel like they deserve. And at the end of the day, what he tells us and what Paul tells us on behalf of God is that husbands and wives, that cycle will go on and on and on and on and repeat and repeat and repeat until someone decides to give people better than they deserve. And what's amazing about what Paul says here on behalf of God is he reminds us there is no specific person who's responsible for doing that. We can all give the other person better than they deserve. When they don't deserve love, you can show love anyway. When they don't deserve respect, you can show respect anyway. And until we've come to a place where we can do that and where we naturally do that and where that's the beat of our heart for our, for our husband or our wife in our marriage, 
we have some steps to take. And I know this is so much easier to say than to do, but I'm calling all of us to remind us that we have some steps that we can take. If we're trying to figure out how to get spiritually unstuck, some of us as, as husbands and wives, we have to take the steps to show the love and respect that God has called us to show. Here's the third and final one. All of us were commanded by Jesus to go into all the world and make disciples, telling people everywhere about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Every one of us is commanded to do this, but very few people actually do this. And I would just say, if you're stuck, if you're stuck spiritually and you're trying to figure out, well, what do I do? How do I get myself unstuck? You follow the commands and you obey the commands of Christ. And Jesus Christ commanded us, go into all the world, and that includes your neighborhood, and that includes your kid's soccer team that you can't see and you probably won't see for another six months, and that includes the people that you work with, maybe you haven't seen them in a while, and that includes people that you, that you interact with on a daily basis, that includes everyone that you meet. Go into all the world, including our city, and share the love of God that we know about because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And if you're thinking, man, I, 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 just, I just don't know if I can do that, that means you'll be exactly where God wants you to be, in a place where you can't do it. It will mean you have found yourself in a place where you are in over your head and your feet can't touch, and you will find yourself fully dependent on God. In other words, you will find yourself exactly where God wants you to be. This is how it works. We obey, we find understanding, because obedience always precedes understanding. And that's why obedience is what gets us spiritually unstuck. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, today I thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you do not want us to be spiritually stuck. And so God, I simply pray for all of us today, whatever it is that you're calling or commanding or asking or telling us to do, I pray that we would have the wisdom to hear it. I pray that we'd have the wisdom to know what it is that you're asking us to do. And I pray that we would have the courage to actually take the steps that you're asking us to take. And God, I thank you that as we take whatever step you're asking us to take, as we follow you with a step of obedience, I thank you that we can get unstuck, that we don't have to stay spiritually stuck, that we can move forward. And I thank you that we can do that as we obey you, as we follow you with everything that we have. So help us to do that, God. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.